Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's timeless tale of the Dashwood sisters set in Regency-era England. This is the 12th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series, plus new episodes, at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sense and Sensibility. Chapter 36 Within a few days after this meeting, the newspapers announced to the world that the Lady of Thomas Palmer, Esquire, was safely delivered of a son and heir. A very interesting and satisfactory paragraph, at least to all those intimate connections who knew it before. This event, highly important to Mrs. Jennings' happiness, produced a temporary alteration in the disposal of her time and influenced in a like degree the engagements of her young friends, for as she wished to be as much as possible with Charlotte, she went thither every morning as soon as she was dressed and did not return till late in the evening and the Miss Dashwoods, at the particular request of the Middletons, spent the whole of every day in Conduit Street. For their own comfort, they would much rather have remained, at least all the morning, in Mrs. Jennings' house, but it was not a thing to be urged against the wishes of everybody. Their hours were therefore made over to Lady Middleton and the two Miss Steeles, by whom their company, in fact, was as little valued as it was professedly thought. They had too much sense to be desirable companions to the former, and by the latter they were considered with a jealous eye as intruding on their ground and sharing the kindness which they wanted to monopolize though nothing could be more polite than Lady Middleton's behavior to Eleanor and Marianne. She did not really like them at all, because they neither flattered herself nor her children. She could not believe them good-natured, and because they were fond of reading, she fancied them satirical, perhaps without exactly knowing what it was to be satirical, but that did not signify. It was censure in common use and easily given. Their presence was a restraint both on her and on Lucy. It checked the idleness of one and the busyness of the other. Lady Middleton was ashamed of doing nothing before them, and the flattery which Lucy was proud to think of and administer at other times, she feared they would despise her for offering. Miss Steele was the least discomposed of the three by their presence, and it was in their power to reconcile her to it entirely— would either of them only have given her a full and minute account of the whole affair between Marianne and Mr. Willoughby, she would have thought herself amply rewarded for the sacrifice of the best place by the fire after dinner, which their arrival occasioned. But this conciliation was not granted, for though she often threw out expressions of pity for her sister to Eleanor, and more than once dropped a reflection on the inconstancy of bows before Marianne, no effect was produced but a look of indifference from the former or of disgust in the latter. An effort even yet lighter might have made her their friend, would they only have laughed at her about the doctor. But so little were they— any more than the others, inclined to oblige her, that if Sir John dined from home, she might spend a whole day without hearing any other raillery on the subject than what she was kind enough to bestow on herself. All these jealousies and discontents, however, were so totally unsuspected by Mrs. Jennings that she thought it a delightful thing for the girls to be together, and generally congratulated her young friends every night on having escaped the company of a stupid old woman so long. She joined them sometimes at Sir John's, sometimes at her own house, but wherever it was— she always came in excellent spirits, full of delight and importance, attributing Charlotte's well-doing to her own care, and ready to give so exact, so minute a detail of her situation as only Miss Steele had curiosity enough to desire. One thing did disturb her, 
and of that she made her daily complaint. Mr. Palmer maintained the common but unfatherly opinion among his sex of all infants being alike, and though she could plainly perceive at different times the most striking resemblance between this baby and every other one of his relations on both sides, there was no convincing his father of it no persuading him to believe that it was not exactly like every other baby of the same age. Nor could he even be brought to acknowledge the simple proposition of its being the finest child in the world. I come now to the relation of a misfortune, which about this time befell Mrs. John Dashwood. It so happened that while her two sisters with Mrs. Jennings were first calling on her in Harley Street, another of her acquaintance had dropped in, a circumstance in itself not apparently likely to produce evil to her. But while the imaginations of other people will carry them away to form wrong judgments of our conduct and to decide on it by slight appearances, one's happiness must in some measure be always at the mercy of chance. In the present instance, this last-arrived lady allowed her fancy to so far outrun truth and probability that on merely hearing the name of the Miss Dashwoods and understanding them to be Mr. Dashwood's sisters, she immediately concluded them to be staying in Harley Street. And this misconstruction produced within a day or two afterwards cards of invitation for them, as well as for their brother and sister, to a small musical party at her house. The consequence of which was that Mrs. John Dashwood was obliged to submit not only to the exceedingly great inconvenience of sending her carriage for the Miss Dashwoods, but, what was still worse, must be subject to all the unpleasantness of appearing to treat them with attention, and who could tell that they might not expect to go out with her a second time? The power of disappointing them, it was true, must always be hers. But that was not enough, for when people are determined on a mode of conduct which they know to be wrong, they feel injured by the expectation of anything better from them. Marianne had now been brought by degrees so much into the habit of going out every day that it was become a matter of indifference to her whether she went or not, and she prepared quietly and mechanically for every evening's engagement, though without expecting the smallest amusement from any, and very often without knowing till the last moment where it was to take her. To her dress and appearance she was grown so perfectly indifferent as not to bestow half the consideration on it during the whole of her toilette, which it received from Miss Steele in the first five minutes of their being together when it was finished. Nothing escaped her minute observation and general curiosity. She saw everything and asked everything, was never easy till she knew the price of every part of Marianne's dress." could have guessed the number of her gowns altogether with better judgment than Marianne herself, and was not without hopes of finding out before they parted how much her washing cost per week and how much she had every year to spend upon herself. The impertinence of these kinds of scrutinies, moreover, was generally concluded with a compliment, which, though meant as its douceur, was considered by Marianne as the greatest impertinence of all. For after undergoing an examination into the value and make of her gown, the color of her shoes, and the arrangement of her hair, she was almost sure of being told that upon her word she looked vastly smart, and she dared to say she would make a great many conquests. With such encouragement as this, was she dismissed on the present occasion to her brother's carriage, which they were ready to enter five minutes after it stopped at the door, a punctuality not very agreeable to their sister-in-law, who had preceded them to the house of her acquaintance, and was there hoping for some delay on their part that might inconvenience either herself or her coachman. The events of this evening were not very remarkable. The party, like other musical parties, comprehended a great many people who had real taste for the performance, 
and a great many more who had none at all, and the performers themselves were, as usual, in their own estimation, and that of their immediate friends, the first private performers in England. As Eleanor was neither musical nor affecting to be so, she made no scruple of turning her eyes from the grand pianoforte whenever it suited her, and unrestrained even by the presence of a harp and violoncello would fix them at pleasure on any other object in the room. In one of these excursive glances, she perceived among a group of young men the very he who had given them a lecture on toothpick cases at Gray's. She perceived him soon afterwards looking at herself and speaking familiarly to her brother, and had just determined to find out his name from the latter when they both came towards her, and Mr. Dashwood introduced him to her as Mr. Robert Ferrars. He addressed her with easy civility, and twisted his head into a bow, which assured her as plainly as words could have done that he was exactly the coxcomb she had heard him describe to be by Lucy. Happy had it been for her if her regard for Edward had depended less on his own merit than on the merit of his nearest relations. For then his brother's bow must have given the finishing stroke to what the ill humour of his mother and sister would have begun. But while she wondered at the difference of the two young men, she did not find that the emptiness of conceit of the one put her out of all charity with the modesty and worth of the other. Why they were different, Robert exclaimed to her himself in the course of a quarter of an hour's conversation, for talking of his brother and lamenting the extreme gauchelty which he really believed kept him from mixing in proper society, he candidly and generously attributed much less to any natural deficiency than to the misfortune of a private education, while he himself, though probably without any particular, any material superiority by nature, merely from the advantage of a public school, was as well fitted to mix in the world as any other man. Upon my soul, he added, I believe it is nothing more, and so I often tell my mother when she is grieving about it. My dear madam, I always say to her, you must make yourself easy. The evil is now irremediable, and it has been entirely your own doing. Why would you be persuaded by my uncle, Sir Robert, against your own judgment, to place Edward under private tuition at the most critical time of his life, if you had only sent him to Westminster as well as myself, instead of sending him to Mr. Pratt's, all this would have been prevented. This is the way in which I always consider the matter, and my mother is perfectly convinced of her error." Eleanor would not oppose his opinion, because, whatever might be her general estimation of the advantage of a public school, she could not think of Edward's abode in Mr. Pratt's family with any satisfaction. "'You'll reside in Devonshire, I think,' was his next observation, "'in a cottage near Dawlish.' Eleanor set him right as to its situation, and it seemed rather surprising to him that anybody could live in Devonshire without living near Dawlish. He bestowed his hearty approbation, however, on their species of house. For my own part, said he, I am excessively fond of a cottage. There is always so much comfort, so much elegance about them. And I protest, if I had any money to spare, I should buy a little land and build one myself, within a short distance of London, where I might drive myself down at any time and collect a few friends about me and be happy. I advise everybody who is going to build a cottage. My friend Lord Cortland came to me the other day on purpose to ask my advice and laid before me three different plans of bonhomies. I was to decide on the best of them. My dear Cortland, said I, immediately throwing them all into the fire, do not adopt either of them. My dear Cortland, said I, immediately throwing them all into the fire, do not adopt either of them, but by all means build a cottage. And that, I fancy, will be the end of it. 
Some people imagine that there can be no accommodations, no space in a cottage. But this is all a mistake. I was last month at my friend Elliot's near Dartford. Lady Elliot wished to give a dance. But how can it be done, said she? My dear Faraz, do tell me how it is to be managed. There is not a room in this cottage that will hold ten couple. And where can the supper be? I immediately saw that there could be no difficulty in it, so I said, My dear Lady Elliot, do not be uneasy. The dining parlour will admit eighteen couple with ease. Card tables may be placed in the drawing room, the library may be open for tea and other refreshments, and let the supper be set out in the saloon. <laughs> well, Lady Elliot was delighted with the thought. We measured the dining room and found it would hold exactly eighteen couple, and the affair was arranged precisely after my plan, so that, in fact, you see, if people do but know how to set about it, every comfort may be as well enjoyed in a cottage as in the most spacious dwelling. Eleanor agreed to it all, for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. As John Dashwood had no more pleasure in music than his eldest sister, his mind was equally at liberty to fix on anything else, and a thought struck him during the evening, which he communicated to his wife, for her approbation when they got home. The consideration of Mrs. Dennison's mistake in supposing his sisters their guests had suggested the propriety of their being really invited to become such, while Mrs. Jennings' engagements kept her from home. The expense would be nothing, the inconvenience not more, and it was altogether an attention which the delicacy of his conscience pointed out to be requisite to its complete enfranchisement from his promise to his father. Fanny was startled at the proposal. I do not see how it can be done, said she, without affronting Lady Middleton, for they spend every day with her. Otherwise, I should be exceedingly glad to do it. You know I am always ready to pay them any attention in my power, as my taking them out this evening shows. But there are Lady Middleton's visitors. How can I ask them away from her? Her husband, but with great humility, did not see the force of her objection. They had already spent a week in this manner in Conwit Street, and Lady Middleton could not be displeased at their giving the same number of days to such near relations. Fanny paused a moment, and then, with fresh vigour, said, Oh, my love, I would ask him with all my heart, if it was in my power. But I had just settled within myself to ask the Miss Steeles to spend a few days with us. They are very well-behaved, good kind of girls, and I think the attention is due to them, as their uncle did so very well by Edward. We can ask your sister some other year, you know, but the Miss Steeles may not be in town any more. Well, I'm sure you will like them indeed. Indeed, you do like them, you know. You like them very much already, and so does my mother, and they are such favourites with Harry. Mr. Dashwood was convinced. He saw the necessity of inviting the Miss Steeles immediately and his conscience was pacified by the resolution of inviting his sisters another year. At the same time, however, slyly suspecting that another year would make the invitation needless, by bringing Eleanor to town as Colonel Brandon's wife and Marianne as their visitor. Fanny, rejoicing in her escape and proud of the ready wit that had procured it, wrote the next morning to Lucy to request her company and her sisters for some days in Harley Street, as soon as Lady Middleton could spare them. This was enough to make Lucy really and reasonably happy. Mrs. Dashwood seemed actually working for her, herself, cherishing all her hopes and promoting all her views. Such an opportunity of being with Edward and his family was, above all things, the most material to her interest, and such an invitation the most gratifying to her feelings. 
It was an advantage that could not be too gratefully acknowledged, nor too speedily made use of, and the visit to Lady Middleton, which had not before had any precise limits, was instantly discovered to have been always meant to end in two days' time. When the note was shown to Eleanor, as it was within ten minutes after its arrival, it gave her, for the first time, some share in the expectations of Lucy— for such a mark of uncommon kindness, vouchsafed on so short an acquaintance, seemed to declare that the good will towards her arose from something more than merely malice against herself, and might be brought by time and address to do everything that Lucy wished. Her flattery had already subdued the pride of Lady Middleton, and made an entry into the close heart of Mrs. John Dashwood, and these were effects that laid open the probability of greater. The Miss Steeles removed to Harley Street, and all that reached Eleanor of their influence there strengthened her expectation of the event. Sir John, who called on them more than once, brought home such accounts of the favour they were in as must be universally striking. Mrs. Dashwood had never been so much pleased with any young women in her life as she was with them, had given each of them a needle-book made by some emigrant, called Lucy by her Christian name, and did not know whether she should ever be able to part with them. Chapter 37 Mrs. Palmer was so well at the end of a fortnight that her mother felt it no longer necessary to give up the whole of her time to her, and contenting herself with visiting her once or twice a day, returned from that period to her own home and her own habits, in which she found the Miss Dashwoods very ready to resume their former share. About the third or fourth morning after their being thus resettled in Berkeley Street, Mrs. Jennings, on returning from her ordinary visit to Mrs. Palmer, entered the drawing-room, where Eleanor was sitting by herself, with an air of such hurrying importance as prepared her to hear something wonderful, and giving her time only to form that idea, began directly to justify it by saying, "'Lord, my dear Miss Dashwood, have you heard the news?' "'No, ma'am. What is it? Oh, something so strange. But you shall hear it all. When I got to Mr. Palmer's, I found Charlotte quite in a fuss about the child. She was sure it was very ill. It cried, it fretted. It was all over pimples. So I looked at it directly, and—' "'Lord, my dear,' says I, "'it is nothing in the world but the red gum.' And nurse said just the same. But Charlotte, she would not be satisfied. So Mr. Donovan was sent for. And luckily, he happened to be just come in from Harley Street. So he stepped over directly. And as soon as ever, as just as we did, he said it was nothing in the world but the red gum. And then Charlotte was easy. And so, just as he was going away again, it came into my head, I am sure I do not know how I happened to think of it, but it came into my head to ask him if there was any news. So upon that, he smirked and simpered and looked grave and seemed to know something or other, and at last he said in a whisper, For fear my unpleasant report should reach the young ladies under your care as to their sister's indisposition, I think it advisable to say that I believe there is no great reason for alarm. I hope Mrs. Dashwood will do very well. What? Is Fanny ill? Oh, that is exactly what I said, my dear. Lord, says I, is Mrs. Dashwood ill? So then it all came out, and the long and the short of the matter, by all I can learn, seems to be this. Mr. Edward Ferrars, the very young man I used to joke with you about. But, however, as it turns out, I am monstrous glad there was never anything in it. Mr. Edward Ferrars, it seems, has been engaged above this twelve-month to my cousin Lucy. There's for you, my dear. And not a creature knowing a syllable of the matter except Nancy. Could you have believed such a thing possible? There is no great wonder in their liking one another, but that matter should be brought so forward between them and nobody suspect it. 
Oh, that is strange. I never happened to see them together, or I am sure I should have found it out directly. Well, and so this was kept a great secret for fear of Mrs. Ferrars, and neither she nor your brother or sister suspected a word of the matter till this very morning. Poor Nancy, who you know is a well-meaning creature, but no conjurer, popped it all out. Lord, thinks she to herself, they are all so fond of Lucy. To be sure, they will make no difficulty about it. And so away she went to your sister, who was sitting all alone at her carpet-work, little suspecting what was to come, for she had just been saying to your brother only five minutes before that she thought to make a match between Edward and some lord's daughter or other. I forget who. So you may think what a blow it was to all her vanity and pride. She fell into violent hysterics immediately, with such screams as reached your brother's ears as he was sitting in his own dressing-room downstairs, thinking about writing a letter to a steward in the country. So up he flew directly, and a terrible scene took place, for Lucy was come to them by that time, little dreaming what was going on. <sighs> Poor soul! I pity her, and I must say, I think she was used very hardly, for your sister scolded like any fury, and soon drove her into a fainting fit. Nancy, she fell upon her knees and cried bitterly, and your brother, he walked about the room and said he did not know what to do. Mrs. Dashwood declared they should not stay a minute longer in the house, and your brother was forced to go down upon his knees, too, to persuade her to let them stay till they had packed up their clothes. Then she fell into hysterics again, and he was so frightened that he would send for Mr. Donovan, and Mr. Donovan found the house in all this, this uproar. The carriage was at the door, ready to take my poor cousins away, and they were just stepping in as he came off. Poor Lucy, in such a condition, he says, she could hardly walk, and Nancy, she was almost as bad. I declare, I have no patience with your sister, and I hope, with all my heart, it will be a match in spite of her. Lord! What a taking poor Mr. Edward will be in when he hears of it, to have his love used so scornfully, for they say he is monstrous fond of her, as well he may. I should not wonder if he was to be in the greatest passion, and Mr. Donovan thinks just the same. He and I had a great deal to talk about it, and the best of all is— that he is gone back again to Harley Street, that he may be within call when Mrs. Ferrars is told of it. For she was sent for as soon as ever my cousins left the house, for your sister was sure she would be in hysterics too, and so she may, for what I care. I have no pity for either of them. I have no notion of people's making such a to-do about money and greatness. There is no reason on earth why Mr. Edward and Lucy should not marry, for I am sure Mrs. Ferrars may afford to do very well by her son, and though Lucy has next to nothing herself, she knows better than anybody how to make the most of everything, I dare say. She knows better than anybody how to make the most of everything, I dare say. If Mrs. Ferrars would only allow him five hundred a year, she would make as good an appearance with it as anybody else would with eight. Lord, how snug they might live in such another cottage as yours, or a little better, with two maids and two men, and I believe I could help them to a housemaid, for my Betty has a sister out of place and would fit them exactly. Here Mrs. Jennings ceased and as Eleanor had had time enough to collect her thoughts, she was able to give such an answer and make such observations as the subject might naturally be supposed to produce. Happy to find that she was not suspected of any extraordinary interest in it, that Mrs. Jennings, as she had of late often hoped might be the case, had ceased to imagine her at all attached to Edward, and happy above all the rest, in the absence of Marianne, 
she felt very well able to speak of the affair without embarrassment, and to give her judgment, as she believed, with impartiality on the conduct of everyone concerned in it. She could hardly determine what her own expectation of its event really was, though she earnestly tried to drive away the notion of its being possible to end otherwise at last than in the marriage of Edward and Lucy. What Mrs. Ferrars would say and do, though there could not be a doubt of its nature, she was anxious to hear, and still more anxious to know how Edward would conduct himself. For him, she felt much compassion. For Lucy, very little, and it cost her some pains to procure that little. For the rest of the party, none at all. As Mrs. Jennings could talk on no other subject, Eleanor soon saw the necessity of preparing Marianne for its discussion. No time was to be lost in undeceiving her, in making her acquainted with the real truth, and in endeavouring to bring her to hear it talked of by others, without betraying that she felt any uneasiness for her sister, or any resentment against Edward. Eleanor's office was a painful one. She was going to remove what she really believed to be her sister's chief consolation to give such particulars of Edward as she feared would ruin him forever in her good opinion, and to make Marianne, by a resemblance in their situations, which to her fancy would seem strong, feel all her own disappointment over again. But unwelcome as such a task might be, it was necessary to be done, and Eleanor therefore hastened to perform it. She was very far from wishing to dwell on her own feelings, or to represent herself as suffering much, any otherwise than as the self-command she had practiced since her first knowledge of Edward's engagement might suggest a hint of what was practicable to Marianne. Her narration was clear and simple, and though it could not be given without emotion, it was not accompanied by violent agitation nor impetuous grief. That belonged rather to the hearer. For Marianne listened with horror and cried excessively. Eleanor was to be the comforter of others in her own distresses, no less than in theirs. And all the comfort that could be given by assurances of her own composure of mind, and a very earnest vindication of Edward from every charge but of imprudence, was readily offered. But Marianne for some time would give credit to neither. Edward seemed a second Willoughby, and acknowledging, as Eleanor did, that she had loved him most sincerely, could she feel less than herself? As for Lucy Steele, she considered her so totally unamiable, so absolutely incapable of attaching a sensible man, that she could not be persuaded at first to believe, and afterwards to pardon, any former affection of Edward for her. She would not even admit it to have been natural, and Eleanor left her to be convinced that it was so, by that which only could convince her a better knowledge of mankind. Her first communication had reached no farther than to state the fact of the engagement and the length of time it had existed. Marianne's feelings had then broken in and put an end to all regularity of detail, and for some time all that could be done was to soothe her distress, lessen her alarms, and combat her resentment. The first question on her side, which led to farther particulars, was— how long, how long has this been known to you, Eleanor? Has he, has he written to you? I have known it these four months. When Lucy first came to Barton Park last November, she told me in confidence of her engagement. At these words, Marianne's eyes expressed the astonishment which her lips could not utter. After a pause of wonder, she exclaimed, Four months! Have you known of this four months? Eleanor confirmed it. What? While attending me in all my misery? Has this been on your heart? And I have reproached you for being happy? It was not fit that you should then know how much I was the reverse, 
Oh, four months, cried Marianne again. So calm, so cheerful. But how have you been supported? By feeling that I was doing my duty. My promise to Lucy obliged me to be secret. I owed it to her, therefore, to avoid giving any hint of the truth. And I owed it to my family and friends not to create in them a solicitude about me which it could not be in my power to satisfy. Marianne seemed much struck. I have very often wished to undeceive yourself and my mother, added Eleanor, and once or twice I have attempted it. But without betraying my trust, I never could have convinced you. Four months, and yet you loved him. Yes, but I did not only love him. And while the comfort of others was dear to me, I was glad to spare them from knowing how much I felt. Now I can think and speak of it with little emotion. I would not have you suffer on my account, for I assure you I no longer suffer materially myself. I have many things to support me. I am not conscious of having provoked the disappointment of any imprudence of my own. I have borne it as much as possible without spreading it farther. I acquit Edward of essential misconduct. I wish him very happy, and I am so sure of his always doing his duty, that though now he may harbor some regret, in the end he must become so. Lucy does not want sense, and that is the foundation on which every good thing may be built. And after all, Marianne, after all that is bewitching in the idea of a single and constant attachment, and all that can be said of one's happiness depending entirely on any particular person, it is not meant, it is not fit, it is not possible that it should be so. Edward will marry Lucy. He will marry a woman superior in person and understanding to half her sex, and time and habit will teach him to forget that he ever thought another superior to her. If such is your way of thinking, said Marianne, if the loss of what is most valued is so easily to be made up by something else, your resolution your self-command are perhaps a little less to be wondered at. They are brought more within my comprehension. I understand you. You do not suppose that I have ever felt much. For four months, Marianne, I have had all this hanging on my mind without being at liberty to speak of it to a single creature, knowing that it would make you and my mother most unhappy whenever it were explained. Yet, unable to prepare you for it in the least. It was told me. It was, in a way, a manner forced on me by the very person herself whose prior engagement ruined all my prospects, and told me, as I thought, with triumph. This person's suspicions, therefore, I have had to oppose by endeavouring to appear indifferent where I have been most deeply interested and it has not only been once. I have had her hopes and exultations to listen to again and again. I have known myself to be divided from Edward for ever, without learning one circumstance that could make me less desire the connection. Nothing has proved him unworthy, nor has anything declared him indifferent to me. I have had to contend against the unkindness of his sister and the insolence of his mother and have suffered the punishment of an attachment without enjoying its advantages. And all this has been going on at a time when, as you know too well, it has not been my only unhappiness. If you can think me capable of ever feeling, surely you may suppose that I have suffered now. The composure of mind with which I have brought myself at present to consider the matter, the consolation that I have been willing to admit, have been the effect of constant and painful exertion. They did not spring up of themselves. They did not occur to relieve my spirits at first. No, Marianne. Then, if I had not been bound to silence, perhaps nothing 
could have kept me entirely, not even what I owe to my dearest friends, from openly showing that I was very unhappy. Marianne was quite subdued. Oh, Eleanor, you have made me hate myself forever. How barbarous have I been to you. You have been, you have been my only comfort, who have borne with me in all my misery, who have seemed to be only suffering for me. Is this my gratitude? Is this the only return I can make you? Because your merit cries out upon myself. I have been trying to do it away. The tenderest caresses followed this confession. In such a frame of mind as she was now in, Eleanor had no difficulty in obtaining from her whatever promise she required, and at her request, Marianne engaged never to speak of the affair to anyone with the least appearance of bitterness, to meet Lucy without betraying the smallest increase of dislike to her, and even to see Edward himself, if chance could bring them together, without any diminution of her usual cordiality. These were great concessions, but where Marianne felt that she had injured, no reparation could be too much for her to make. She performed her promise of being discreet to admiration. She attended to all that Mrs. Jennings had to say upon the subject with an unchanging complexion, dissented from her in nothing, and was heard three times to say, Yes, ma'am. She listened to her praise of Lucy with only moving from one chair to another, and when Mrs. Jennings talked of Edward's affection, it cost her only a spasm in her throat. Such advances towards heroism in her sister made Eleanor feel equal to anything herself. The next morning brought a further trial of it in a visit from their brother, who came with the most serious aspect to talk over the dreadful affair and bring them news of his wife. "'You have heard, I suppose,' said he, with great solemnity, as soon as he was seated, "'of the very shocking discovery that took place under our roof yesterday.' They all looked at their assent. It seemed too awful a moment for speech. "'Your sister!' he continued, has suffered dreadfully. Mrs. Ferrars, too. In short, it has been a scene of such complicated distress. But I will hope that the storm may be weathered without our being any of us quite overcome. Oh, oh my goodness, poor Fanny. She was in hysterics all yesterday. But I would not alarm you too much. Donovan says there is nothing materially to be apprehended. Her constitution is a good one, and her resolution equal to anything. She has borne it all with the fortitude of an angel. She says she shall never think well of anybody again, and one cannot wonder at it after being so deceived. Meeting with such ingratitude where so much kindness has been shown, so much confidence has been placed— it was quite out of the benevolence of her heart that she had asked these young women to her house, merely because she thought they deserved some attention, were harmless, well-behaved girls, and would be pleasant companions. For otherwise, we both wished very much to have invited you and Marianne to be with us, while your kind friend there was attending her daughter. And now, and now, to be so rewarded! Oh, I wish with all my heart— says poor Fanny, in her affectionate way, that we had asked your sisters instead of them. Here he stopped to be thanked, which, being done, he went on. What poor Mrs. Ferrar suffered, when first Fanny broke it to her, is not to be described. While she, with the truest affection, had been planning a most eligible connection for him, was it to be supposed that he could be all the time secretly engaged to another person? Such a suspicion could never have entered her head. If she suspected any preposition elsewhere, it could not be in that quarter. There, to be sure, said she, I might have thought myself safe. She was quite in an agony. We consulted together, however, as to what should be done, and at last she determined to send for Edward. He came. But I am sorry to relate what ensued. 
all that Mrs. Ferrars could say to make him put an end to the engagement, assisted too, as you may well suppose, by my arguments and Fanny's entreaties, was of no avail. Duty, affection, everything was disregarded. I never thought Edward so stubborn, so unfeeling before. His mother explained to him her liberal designs in case of his marrying Miss Morton, told him she would settle on him the Norfolk estate, which clear of land tax brings in a good thousand a year, offered even when matters grew desperate to make it twelve hundred. And in opposition to this, if he still persisted in this low connection, represented to him the certain penury that must attend the match. His own two thousand pounds, she protested, should be his all. She would never see him again, and so far would she be from affording him the smallest assistance that if he were to enter into any profession with a view of better support, she would do all in her power to prevent him from advancing in it. Here Marianne, in an ecstasy of indignation, clapped her hands together and cried, "'Gracious God, can this be possible?' "'Well, may you wonder, Marianne,' replied her brother, "'at the obstinacy which could resist such arguments as these. "'Your exclamation is very natural.' Marianne was going to retort, but she remembered her promises and forbore. "'All this, however, was urged in vain. "'Edward said very little.' But what he did say was in the most determined manner. Nothing should prevail on him to give up his engagement. He would stand to it, cost him what it might. Then, cried Mrs. Jennings, with blunt sincerity, no longer able to be silent, he has acted like an honest man. I beg your pardon, Mr. Dashwood, but if he had done otherwise, I should have thought him a rascal. I have some little concern in the business, as well as yourself, for Lucy Steele is my cousin, and I believe there is not a better kind of girl in the world, nor one who more deserves a good husband. John Dashwood was greatly astonished, but his nature was calm, not open to provocation, and he never wished to offend anybody, especially anybody of good fortune. He therefore replied, without any resentment, I would no means speak disrespectfully of any relation of yours, madam. Miss Lucy Steele is, I, I dare say, a very deserving young woman, but in the present case, you know, the, the connection must be impossible. And to have entered into a secret engagement with a young man under her uncle's care, the son of a woman especially of such very large fortune as Mrs. Ferrars is, perhaps, well altogether a, a little extraordinary. In short, I do not mean to reflect upon the behavior of any person whom you have a regard for, Mrs. Jennings. We all wish her extremely happy, and Mrs. Ferrar's conduct throughout the whole has been such as every conscientious good mother in like circumstances would adopt. It has been dignified and liberal. Edward has drawn his own lot and I fear it will be a bad one. Marianne sighed out her similar apprehension, and Eleanor's heart wrung for the feelings of Edward, while braving his mother's threats for a woman who could not reward him. Well, sir, said Mrs. Jennings, and how did it end? I am sorry to say, ma'am, in a most unhappy rupture, Edward is dismissed for ever from his mother's notice. He left her house yesterday, but where he is gone, or whether he is still in town, I do not know, for we, of course, can make no inquiry. Poor young man! And what is to become of him? What indeed, ma'am? It is a melancholy consideration. Born to the prospect of such affluence, I cannot conceive a situation more deplorable— the interest of two thousand pounds, how can a man live on it? And when to that is added the recollection that he might but for his own folly within three months have been in the receipt of two thousand five hundred a year, for Miss Morton has thirty thousand pounds, I cannot picture to myself a more wretched condition. 
we must all feel for him, and, and the more so, because it is totally out of our power to assist him. Poor young man, cried Mrs. Jennings. I am sure he should be very welcome to bed and board at my house, and so I would tell him if he liked. Poor young man, cried Mrs. Jennings. I am sure he should be very welcome to bed and board at my house, and so I would tell him if I could see him. It is not fit that he should be living about at his own charge now, at lodgings and taverns. Eleanor's heart thanked her for such kindness towards Edward, though she could not forbear smiling at the form of it. If he would only have done as well by himself, said John Dashwood, as all his friends were disposed to do by him, he might now have been in his proper situation and would have wanted for nothing. But as it is, it must be out of anybody's power to assist him. And there is one thing more preparing against him, which must be worse than all. His mother has determined, with a very natural kind of spirit, to settle that estate upon Robert immediately, which might have been Edward's, on proper conditions. I left her this morning with her lawyer, talking over the business. Well, said Mrs. Jennings, that is her revenge. Everybody has a way of their own. But I don't think mine would be to make one son independent, because another had plagued me. Marianne got up and walked about the room. Can anything be more galling to the spirit of a man, continued John, than to see his younger brother in possession of an estate which might have been his own? Poor Edward, I feel for him sincerely. A few minutes more spent in the same kind of effusion concluded his visit, and with repeated assurances to his sisters that he really believed there was no material danger in Fanny's indisposition, and that they need not therefore be very uneasy about it, he went away, leaving the three ladies unanimous in their sentiments on the present occasion, as far at least as it regarded Mrs. Farrar's conduct the Dashwoods, and Edwards. Marianne's indignation burst forth as soon as he quitted the room, and as her vehemence made reserve impossible in Eleanor and unnecessary in Mrs. Jennings, they all joined in a very spirited critique upon the party. Thank you for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Pride and Prejudice, Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, and The Woman in White. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.